Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, just, I just want to say this now. Before we get to the end of chapter 4, I want you guys to memorize a song, okay? I want you to go online and look up the Ephesians 4.32 song. I don't even know what it's called or if it's even available online. I'm telling you something that may not be possible right now. And when we get to that verse... That morning, I want us to just sing that together. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Do do Ephesians four thirty two, and then we'll all like look at each other in astonishment that we. Okay, anyways, moving on. We're not even there. We're it's going to be a little bit. This morning, we are continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at part one of a, uh, a study I've titled, The Call to and Basis of Unity. Our main text is Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6 in this uh, short s- series of studies. But in part one, we're going to be um, really um, sort of laying the groundwork for this new section of Ephesians that we're getting into and, and focusing on verse one. So keep the context. We're going to read verses one through six. Paul writing to the church of Ephesus, he says, I therefore, verse 1, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Can you see this theme, this ongoing sort of theme that's running for Paul of oneness? One and one Father and one baptism and one Lord and one body. And this is, you know, he's already talked about what Jesus has done to break down that middle wall of separation, to get rid of that division that existed, to create this new humanity that used to be Jews over here, Gentiles over here. Now we're one in Christ Jesus. And this theme continues on. This, this theme of unity is continuing on in Paul's letter here in the first uh, half of chapter 4. But before we get into this section, I I want us to revisit some things we considered in our intro to the book of Ephesians so that we continue to keep the right perspective of this book as a whole, but also keep the right perspective as we now start diving into the second half of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. Just a reminder, okay? Paul spent three years with these people. He knew them, he loved them, he served them, he was in their homes, he wept. Like, day and night with tears, Paul would say, like when he was uh, spending time with the Ephesian elders. Day and night with tears, I was with you. I was among you. Like, there's just this real care that Paul had for these uh, people. He spent time, had a little leadership conference, even after finally leaving the, uh, the city of Ephesus after three years, he's writing this well-rounded letter to them. It's, as we've already seen, full of deep theology and rich spiritual truths and promises, but also powerful and 
encouraging exhortations and practical application. It's a well-rounded letter to make us well-rounded believers. The book of Ephesians, as I've noted before, can be really evenly divided in half. The first half, as we just came out of, chapters 1 through 3, dealing predominantly with doctrine, the, the calling of the church. The second half that we're now diving into, verse, uh, chapters 4 through 6, uh, dealing predominantly with application or the, the conduct of the church. Paul knew, and I hope we get this too, that, that right doctrine affects and influences right living. That a, a solid foundation has to be laid before walls can be built and a house can be lived in, and, and we as the church are that house. We have Jesus as our foundation. He's our chief cornerstone. Paul's already made that really, really clear. This letter is so well-rounded, it's really hard for us to peg down just one central theme because there's so many things that Paul really does speak into in this letter. But I, I like how John Stott described what he saw as being the message of Ephesians. He saw it as uh, the theme as being God's new society and i just i want to show again some quotes from him that i think will be really helpful for us to keep in mind as we continue making our way through this letter but uh, you know especially now entering the second half of this letter and so jared informed me this morning good word jared to me too much letters on the screen makes it harder to read so i'm going to read it though so i'll try to do better in the future They're like, can I get my telescope out? He said, the letter focuses on what God did through the historical work of Jesus Christ and does through his spirit today in order to build his new society in the midst of the old. It tells how Jesus Christ shed his blood in a sacrificial death for sin, was then raised from death by the power of God and has been exalted above all competitors to the supreme place in both the universe and the church. More than that, we who are in Christ, organically united to him by faith, have ourselves shared in these great events. We have been raised from spiritual death, exalted to heaven and seated with him there. We have also been reconciled to God and to each other. As a result, through Christ and in Christ, We are nothing less than God's new society, the single new humanity, which he is creating and which includes Jews and Gentiles on equal terms. We are the family of God the Father, the body of Jesus Christ his Son, and the temple or dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are to demonstrate plainly and visibly by our new life the reality of this new thing which God has done, first by the unity and diversity of our common life, Secondly, by the purity and love of our everyday behavior. Next, by the mutual submissiveness and care of our relationships at home. And lastly, by our stability in the fight against the principalities and powers of evil. Then in the fullness of time, God's purpose of unification will be brought to completion under the headship of Jesus Christ. And he went on to say this, the whole letter is thus a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty, Christian faith and Christian life. What God has done through Christ and what we must be 
and do in consequence. And its central theme is God's new society. What it is, how it came into being through Christ, how its origins and nature were revealed to Paul, how it grows through proclamation, how we are to live lives worthy of it, and how one day it will be consummated when Christ presents his bride, the church, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish. For three chapters, Paul has been unfolding for his readers the eternal purpose of God being worked out in history. Through Jesus Christ, who died for sinners and was raised from death, God is creating something entirely new, not just a new life for individuals, for a new society. Paul sees an alienated humanity being reconciled, a fractured humanity being united, even a new humanity being created. It is a a magnificent vision. Now the apostle moves on from the new society to the new standards which are expected of it. So he turns from exposition to exhortation, from what God has done in the indicative to what we must be and do in the imperative from, Christ, uh, from doctrine to duty, from the credenda to the agenda, from mind-stretching theology to its down-to-earth, concrete implications in everyday living. He, I, there's times where it's like, I, I, I couldn't put it that well. Like, just, just quote somebody, right? Like, this is really good. It's just, it's helpful for us because even though this is all part of the same book, the focus, that Paul's focus really is shifting here. If we think about all that we've looked at in chapters one through three, how many times were we told to do something? We haven't been. We haven't been. We're not being told, we haven't been told, do this and then this is the thing and then you do that and then, and then now this. He's just like, this is what God's done. And then he did this. And then he's done that. And he also did this. And he's just gone from one thing to the next. What God has done in Christ Jesus for you and for me. And all we've been able to do for the last three chapters is just sit in awe going, man, God, you are awesome. Like you've done some incredible things. And now Paul's going, cool. Like we've sat with that. We've We've embraced that like, now let's do something. These are helpful for us to have the right mindset, the the right perspective. Again, on the book as a whole, as I think as we make our way through, it's easy to sort of lose the overall context of the book because we're just kind of like making our way through, but just kind of keeping that in mind and, and also having the right perspective as we now get into chapter 4. So with that in mind, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, we're going to read that again. Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Paul begins this section of his letter by saying, I, therefore, which should make it clear to us that everything he just wrote about matters greatly in what he's now about to write about. This isn't like, hey, okay, let's forget all that. It's like, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't now have what I'm about to share. 
Like, those things have to be in place. We've got to keep those things in mind. Everything from chapters 1 through 3, that's all got to be there. We've got to keep that in mind. That, that Now, therefore, because of those things, now this. We wouldn't have this if we first didn't have that. I, I like what um, Warren Wiersbe wrote about this. He said, the word therefore indicates that Paul is basing his exhortations to duty on the doctrines taught in the first three chapters. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 are, are parallel verses, he says. The, the Christian life is not based on ignorance, but knowledge. And the better we understand Bible doctrine, the easier it is to obey Bible duties. When people say, don't talk to me about doctrine, just let me live my Christian life, they are revealing their ignorance of the way the Holy Spirit works in the life of the believer. It makes no difference what you believe, just as long as you live right, is a similar confession of ignorance. It does make a difference what you believe, because what you believe determines how you behave. Again, right doctrine really does affect and influence right living. What we believe about something, it really does affect what we do, what we think, how we treat somebody, how we see our circumstances, how we spend our time. What we believe about something affects everything else in our lives, and, and it's just a reminder. We got to be people who are grounded in the truth of Scripture, right, like this is so important. We don't discount the reason Paul spent so much time in the first three chapters. Just laying that solid foundation is because of how important it is in shaping who we are and what we do. It matters. Again, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 1, we see Paul's reminder to the Ephesian believers that ultimately... He wasn't really a prisoner of Rome. He was a prisoner of the Lord. I shared this back in chapter 3, verse 1, but guys, what does it mean? What, how, does, how, do, how do things change for you and me when, when we can see the hand of the Lord in our circumstances? Because when we miss that part of it and we're in the midst of something that's really hard, we can... All we can see, maybe this has probably been true for you as it's been for me. When we're in the midst of that thing and we're not seeing how God's in it, how God has a plan. We sang this morning, you have good plans. But then we're in the midst of it and we forget that element. We forget or we don't see. We're, we're blind to the things that God's doing or the ways that he's showing up in our everyday circumstances. And all we can see is, man, this just stinks. And this is hard. And instead of seeing how God might have a purpose or, or seeing that maybe he even ordained something in our lives that could be really difficult that we would rather escape from, that God can use even the most difficult of circumstances in our lives and in the lives of others and for his glory if we can take a step back and have a different sort of perspective, the perspective of, well, God, wherever you have me, I'm there because you have me there and I'm not alone there. Paul, Paul's not going like, whoa, uh, me, 
and I'm by myself, and here I am. Yeah, people visit me once in a while. But I'm just over here. I'm in house arrest, and I'm chained to guards. I can't go to the bathroom without somebody being chained to me. Like, this stinks. I don't like this. Because let's be honest, we would do that. If that was us for two years. I mean, he already spent two years forgotten in a, in a prison in where the governor was hoping that Paul would bribe him or do something like give him some sort of financial gift to get him out. He's all, this isn't like, well, now this is like, he's never really experienced this before. It should be, okay, you know, like, yeah, you can handle it for a while. He's already been in prison for a couple years before this. At what point do you go, God, when is it going to stop? When is something, why, how are you in this, Lord? And Paul's like, Rome doesn't have any power over me. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Guess what, guys? I'm here with Jesus. And what, what would that change about us seeing our present circumstances when we just go, I'm here, yeah, this stinks, this is hard, whatever that thing is, but I'm here with Jesus. Because he is. If he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, then whatever, where's the limit on that? I don't see a limit. I'm with you until this happens. <laughs> then we'd be like, oh, crud, like, man, Lord, where, what's happening? <laughs> Prisoner of the Lord. Lord, grant us a different perspective, right? Help me to see my situation, my trial, my difficulty differently. But with that therefore in place, Paul now building upon what he's just been writing about in the previous three chapters, he uses the word beseech. Now, I use that all the time in my normal day-to-day life, and I'm sure you do. Right? Nope. Um, We don't. Beseech means to urge, to implore, to exhort. It carries this sense of earnestly encouraging a response or action. Uh, I like what Greek scholar Kenneth, and I, I don't even know how to pronounce the last name. I've heard two different ways. Woost, weast. Kenneth Woost, Woost, Weast. Said in his word studies in the Greek New Testament, he wrote this. He said, we come now to an important dividing point in this letter. The first three chapters contain doctrine. The last three, exhortation. This is the proper order, for only in doctrine can one see the sweet reasonableness of the exhortations and obtain the necessary power and technique to obey them. In brief, he says, God says in chapters 1 through 3, I have made you a saint. In chapters 4 through 6, he says, now live a saintly life. Beseech. In the Greek is parakaleo. I beg of you, please. Paul might have used his apostolic authority, but instead he pleads. Therefore, reaches back to all the blessings and exalted positions in salvation which the saints enjoy in chapters 1 through 3 and reaches ahead to the obligations which such privileges put upon the saints. 
Paul could have used his apostolic authority. Could have said, hey, like, I demand this of you in the Lord. This is, this is a command. Started this section off with a command, but instead we see the grace of God and how Paul presented it as an exhortation, urging us to respond with action to the truths that he's already presented. Now, there's a place for commands. And Paul is going to give some commands in the coming verses. But, but the heart of God, through the pen of Paul, the grace of God here, is calling us to respond with willingness and not out of obligation. Isn't that so cool of the Lord? Like, there's so many times where, where God could just, just whack us upside the head, even. And in his grace, he's just like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do these things, and I'm going to keep extending grace and my patience and my mercy to you, because what I want to do is have you want. What I want is for you to want to walk in my ways. Because that's relationship. That's that relational component. And there are times where God does discipline us, and he will. Like, oh man, that, ugh, that was hard. But couldn't he always go even further than that? Couldn't the discipline be even more? How many times have we been disciplined by the Lord and we're like, God, you could have done so much worse. I, and I would have deserved it. And his grace, his grace, and his grace. You just keep seeing the grace of God here in this letter. What does Paul urge or exhort us to do? Well, he urges us to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Uh, this word walk is going to be a key word in this second half of Paul's letter. When we, when we look at this word walk here, it's simply speaking of our daily, ongoing manner of living, our conduct. Uh, we could say our, our all-encompassing, everywhere-we-go relationship with Jesus. And if someone is disabled or isn't able to walk, that doesn't, well, like, that doesn't disqualify a person from this applying to them. Because it's not speaking physically of the act of us taking each step and being able to stand on our two feet. Um, again, it's our, it's our manner of living. It's our conduct. Now, there are actually two other times in Paul's writings where he specifically speaks into this aspect of walking worthy. We, we find those in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and then also in Colossians chapter 1. I want us to uh, look at those as well. Paul, in those two letters, uh, used this same phrase. Uh, first in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10, and 12, 10, 10 through 12, sorry. Paul writes this, he says, You are witnesses, and God also, how devote, uh, sorry, devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul, um, praying there, said, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, 
and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Our walk is, is talked about many other times in the New Testament. I'm going to show you some other verses up on the screen that mention our walk. Uh, we're going to check those out with our binoculars this morning. This is those times where you have a phone, you just like take a picture and then you can zoom in on it. Anyways. Therefore, Romans 6, 4, and these are actually all references that Paul, these are all Paul's writings, okay? Romans 6, 4, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Then in Romans 13, 13, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, 4, we walk by faith, not by sight. Galatians 5, 16, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Colossians 2, 6, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Colossians 4, 5, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside redeeming the time. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you've received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. There are a lot more verses regarding our walk that I could show you, but we can see pretty clearly that our walk, our, our manner of living, our conduct is important to God and he has a lot to say about it. Why? Because he cares about how we live. He cares about how we live. Seven times in the book of Ephesians alone, Paul is going to mention our walk. Six of those seven times are found just in chapters four and five. And again, Paul is beginning the second half of this letter urging, exhorting us to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. Paul's exhortation is that we would each walk or live in a manner that's worthy, that's appropriate to or befitting of God's calling. Now, we're going to look at the characteristics of that worthy walk in our study next week, but I don't want us to miss this. God, through the pen of Paul, strategically place this exhortation in this exact spot, in this letter. After spending the first half of the letter making sure we knew how much he's done for us and in us and given to us and provided for us. Because at, at least partly, I believe, he wanted to make sure we would approach this exhortation with the right perspective. Not thinking that we have to walk worthy to be called or, or walk worthy to be accepted or walk worthy to have all the blessings and privileges that we read about in the first three chapters, but so that we'll be able to see this exhortation as a blessing, as a get-to, as an outflow, really, 
of all that God's worked into us. But, but also so we would see what he's done for us and in us and, and be confident regarding the power he supplied us with through his spirit, that he's given us what we need to be able to walk worthy of the calling that he's called us with. How many of you, maybe in your Christian life, your Christian walk, those of you that know the Lord, love the Lord, you've struggled at times wondering if God really accepts you, if he's really pleased with you, or, you know, am I living up to his standard? Is, is my walk really worthy of the calling with which I've been called? Because he's called me. He saved me in that sense. He's, he saved me. He's brought me into his kingdom. And then what ends up happening, because we're not super firm in the understanding, the doctrine, the, the realization of what God has done, that it's really not about my performance or your performance. Because when we read chapters one through three, we're not seeing like, well, you were really, really good. That's why. That's why he chose you and accepted you and adopted you and forgave you and saved you and sealed you with his spirit. You were slightly less dead than everybody else. And that's why I made you alive in Christ Jesus. <laughs> you were our, I mean, he was only mostly dead, like Princess Bride, right? Like, he's only mostly dead. Like, no, we were all, like, things were really bleak. Like, they're, they're, we're not, it's not like, well, we contributed something. There was some sort of worthiness there. That's why. That's why he did it. We, we have to be able to approach these things with the right sort of perspective so that we don't have an unhealthy view of what it means to walk worthy. Because what can happen when we don't have that right foundation and that right understanding and we're not embracing like the grace of God in that sort of way, we can put too much of a focus on, on us, what I'm doing. Or maybe what we're focused on is what we're doing that other people aren't doing. Or what we're not doing that other people are doing. Well, I'm doing pretty good. So I'm not doing that. I'm doing pretty good because I am doing that. And then all of a sudden, it's like we're just in this weird works-based sort of relationship with the Lord. And, and all like the relational, the grace, like the, the, the resting in the Lord, it all, it's all like just we set that aside. And then all of a sudden, we're like, we're always struggling with that like, am I worthy? God, am I worthy now? And this exhortation placed right here, it, God through Paul is like trying to remove that tendency in us. If we can grab a hold of everything he's already said in the first three chapters, you and I can approach now this exhortation with this like fundamental understanding and embracing and walking in the grace of God 
where we're not walking worthy to now be accepted, we're walking worthy because we've been accepted. And that doesn't mean that it excuses us from personal responsibility or personal holiness or purity before the Lord. Like God cares about that clearly. And Paul's going to speak into a lot of those things even in the second half of the letter. But, but this exhortation to walk worthy is not at all meant to be daunting or scary or meant to fill us with anxiety, wondering if we're really walking worthy before him or, or, or can walk worthy before him because our worth is found in Christ and all he's provided for us, right? Blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, chosen, ag- adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven, all, all these different things. And now we're being exhorted to live out our lives practically from the place that we've been given by God positionally, right? Positionally before Christ, accepted, chosen, beloved, forgiven, redeemed, sealed with the Spirit of God, obtaining an inheritance, all these things. That position is there. Why? Because God in his grace has saved us. But now with that position in mind, he's going, now live it out. Just walk that thing out. It's kind of like the same principle from Philippians where where Paul writes to the Philippian believers and he's like, look, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'm like, oh, crud. Like, but then he goes, for it's God who's worked in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And we've got to take those things together. We're, we're walking out what God has already worked in. God's already been working things in. He's doing it. He's going to continue to. Now just, just live these things out. We're, we're to walk out what God has worked in. This is crucial for us to grab a hold of and keep in mind as we move forward in our studies uh, of this letter. And we're going to dig into this more next week and, and see how this is connected really to a call to unity that's emphasized uh, in verses 1 through 16. But I'm going to worship team come back up. Uh, I just want to remind us today, okay? If we put our faith in Jesus Christ according to Scripture, if you're going like, that's great, but like, I don't, I don't really, like the called of, like, called part of it, that one is a little more challenging for me. Um, Let me just remind you, and these are all taken right from Scripture. These are all just different little excerpts from verses throughout the New Testament, okay? About being called. We are the called of Jesus Christ. We've been called according to his purpose. We're called to be saints, We're called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. We're called in the grace of Christ. We've been called to liberty or freedom. We've been saved and called with a holy calling. We've been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Called to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. And we've been called children of God. Knowing we've been called, knowing what God has done for us and in us, having a solid foundation of, of right doctrine laid out for us to build our lives upon, 
that foundation being Jesus should give us a whole different perspective and attitude regarding this exhortation to walk worthy. And all Paul's going to write about this in the coming verses and chapters. And it should shape our perspective and really fill us with gratitude, knowing that we've been called. We've been called. But look, if you don't know Jesus personally, know this morning he's calling out to you. He's calling out to you. He's going, look, like, I've already done everything possible. That's the great part about the gospel. We're not contributing anything. We can't. None of us are going like, well, Lord, here, I've done some good stuff. Hope that, hope that helps. Hope you accept that. Like, we can't contribute anything. Jesus did it. Jesus paid it all. And all he's looking for from us is for us to humble ourselves before him, to repent of our sin, turn away from that, turn in faith to Jesus. The Bible tells us if those who call upon the Lord will be saved. Call upon the Lord. And maybe for some, even this morning, that's, that's, that's the call this morning. Call upon the name of the Lord. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe your faith has been in you. Maybe your faith has been in other things. But it needs to be in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you. Lord, that you've spent so much time in this letter that we've been studying. God, just telling us how much you love us, really. Lord, letting, you, letting us know all you've done for us and in us. All you've provided for us in, in Christ Jesus. Lord, how could we not come to verse 1 of chapter 4 and... and and try to muddy that exhortation up by, by thinking that now it's about us. But Lord, that you're just saying, I've already given you what you need, just, just live it out. Lord, would we truly walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called? God, would we have a different perspective on our circumstances? God, would right doctrine truly affect right living? And Lord, would, would others see your work in our lives, Lord? Would we speak about your work in our lives? God, would we talk about the things that you're doing, the things that you're showing us, the ways that you're convicting or challenging us, Lord, the ways that you're encouraging us, God, that we would speak of you. God, that you'd be on our lips, Lord, that, God, we, it wouldn't just be our words, but, Lord, the testimony of our lives, that truly our walk, our manner of living would show that Jesus, you're real. That Jesus, you save. You saved us. Not because we were good enough, but because you're good. And look, if there's anybody here and you've not first just opened your heart to Jesus Christ, Jesus is calling out to you today. Calling out to you. He went to the cross for you. Just as much as he went to the cross for any, for the rest of us here. 
There's nothing better about us than anyone else except that we've received the free gift of salvation of Jesus. If that's you and you want to open your heart to Jesus Christ today, if you want to invite him to be your Savior and Lord and forgive you of your sins, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand so I can pray for you if that's you today. Be willing to make that open profession. I want Jesus. Maybe even someone online joining us that you would go, that's me, I, I want I want Jesus to save me. I want his forgiveness. I want to know that my debt's been paid. I want to know that heaven is in store for me. I want the work of Jesus in my life. I want all things to become new in my life. I don't want to be dead in sin anymore. I want to be made alive. I encourage you to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Save me, forgive me, cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me, that you rose from the grave. Jesus, would you raise me to newness of life? Seal me with your spirit. Make me a new creation in Christ Jesus. Jesus, I put my trust in you. Repent of my sin. God, would you help me to live for you and grow in you and know you better. I encourage you if you've done that. The Bible says you will be saved. Lord, as we respond to your word with songs of praise and the opportunity to be prayed for in the corner of the room and Taking communion, Lord God, the elements, Lord God, would you continue to to move in this place, move in our hearts, God, to stir us for the thing that are close to your heart. God, we thank you and give this time to you and continue to, in Jesus' name, amen.